right, well, we'll go ahead and uh, get started, and um, I think people are still uh, moving over, but um, let me pray for us, and then I'll introduce myself, and then give you one last chance to, to get out if you want to talk about shame today. Um, so, uh, I'll explain why I've embraced it so wholeheartedly um, as we come on in a second. So, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump in today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. What a joy it is to be among your people, uh, to be called together in the name of Christ, and to celebrate together this week, to lament together, to struggle together, to find rest together. What a joy it is that in this type of fellowship we feel your love, that in this type of fellowship we see how it is that you so care about your people. You would make us to need this. You would make us to, to gain something incredible from this being together. So God, I pray for every brother and sister this week just to be renewed, to be restored, to be refueled. And then even as we talk about shame and vulnerability today, Lord, and, and all the other topics, Lord, just that you would bless these as an opportunity um, to renew weary souls, uh, to draw us more and more back to the sufficiency of Christ, more and more back to your glories and to your grace. So God, would you be breath of life to us today through each of these topics and seminars. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, my name is Adam Kopik. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. Well, I'm not from Montgomery, Alabama. I, I am in Montgomery, Alabama since 2007. I'm from a little town in North Alabama called Aniana. Uh, has anybody ever heard of it? Okay, exactly. It's like Narnia. You don't mean to get there. Um, there's nothing there. Um, and so went to Troy, met my wife through campus outreach. Um, when I became a believer, went down to the beach. It's always funny to tell people I met my wife at the beach. And so she's from New Orleans. So I married a Cajun. I call it Louisiana, if anybody's from Louisiana. And so I really believe like I pulled the best thing out of Louisiana. Sorry, I almost said it again. Um, and so these are three kids, which are my minis. Um, like as you can see, like we're a thick frame glass family, very fair skinned. Um, they are beginning more and more to get my rosacea. So, you know, just like little red flares running around. Like nobody questions <laughs> who my kids are. So this is Grady, uh, Grace, and Caleb. And so another thing to know about me and my family is we love to dress up and we love to make like funny <laughs> pictures and videos. And so like when I first went to youth ministry, we like use this as kind of get to know the topics. Um, um, we did like a Will Ferrell Christmas party with our staff, um, which I don't even know, or uh, not Christmas, uh, um, Halloween party a couple years ago. So I don't even know if I can advertise that. Um, somebody's 50th birthday, so we love to kind of embarrass ourselves, and I like to, to show these for a little self-abasement. So in college, um, I thought it was a cool idea to not get haircuts, and so um, I would grow out this little um, patch of hair and uh, get it cut once a year on campus. It's quite a spectacle um, that we did, and then this is my wife and I dating, and I, I kind of show this, like even over the summer, I did this with RYM, and I showed it to students. I just said, I just don't know how to describe God's grace as clear as the fact that God gave me my wife, Stephanie. Um, that in no way deserving, no way like, you know, he had to have given her the wrong set of eyes to be able to uh, wind up with me. And so as we talk about shame today, um, you know, I want us to be thinking about, you know, what are some words and ideas that come to mind? And sometimes maybe one of the first words that a lot of people kind of think about is humiliation. So I try to get that out of the way with some of my pictures. And so, um, you know, for me, like, that is one of those experiences that kind of resonates a little bit. But when you hear the word shame, um, you know, as, as we talk about it now more, or even as you just see the, the topic as one of the things we're talking about here at uh, YLT, what are some words or emotions that it kind of brings up just to see the word shame? Hiding. Hiding? Absolutely. Small. Small. Oh, that's really good. Debilitating. Debilitating? Oh, man. Past, absolutely. Uh, we're over here. Pride. Pride. Weight. Weight. Yeah. And so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Comparison. Comparison. So what's interesting is, see, so for each of us, like maybe when you just see the word, it immediately takes you to some of those places, like some of those areas that you immediately feel shame. For some of you, it takes you to the experience of shame of how it feels. And so I think for, for each of us, like it, it is really a, a hot-and-button topic of how it rears its ugly head in our lives, um, that it really touches all of us in different ways. And so, um, 
you know, it brings really emotional responses. And again, like for some of us, maybe we immediately go to areas like our marriage or our past or we go to our, our ministry or we go to our relationships or we go to self-image and we go to body or we go to whatever, intellect. We go to all sorts of things because it hits us so well. So I want to, to begin by like, why is it important for us to talk about shame? Um, and it's just, just to reel off a few things. One is that shame touches every person, and that means you too. And so, you know, in Les Newsom's class, one of the things you saw with ministry dynamics is one of the first ministry dynamics of our philosophy of ministry is that you are one of the greatest variables of your ministry. And for us to really uh, be honest about dealing with shame in the lives of our students and our families and our parents is to recognize that, man, this how, does it, how is it hitting me? How is it affecting me? And how we cope with shame, with the shame we see or don't see in our life, is often, um, the sun's killing me now, is often affects, it's so much smaller in my little presentation up here, how we relate and minister to others. So regardless if you choose to, to really dive in and to look at the shame and, and, and what's going on with it, you are coping with it. You are dealing with it. We're going to kind of get to that in a little bit. And so how you cope with the shame that you see or don't see in your life, is actually affecting your relationships. It's, it's, it's going to be a part of the framework in which you minister the gospel in the lives of your students and families. So this one sounds redundant. Shame touches every person. That means your students. That means the students that are coming in. And I don't have to convince you that your students are dealing with shame in all sorts of ways, and they are coming in trying to hide it, trying to uh, mask it, trying to do anything um, to not deal with it. Shame can be hidden and subtle and yet have profound long-term impact. This sounds so simple. I had a, I had a friend in ministry and, and she was telling me all this stuff that she was doing and just, just one thing after another, one thing after another, and just the, her comments kept being about how it wasn't enough, that she never felt like she was good enough, and I just simply said, well, you were, just, you were just covering yourself in shame. She got real defensive. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? What, like, what does that mean? She just, for some reason, she just never heard it. Comes back a week later, almost in tears of like, that is absolutely it. And she's just been on this journey of trying to understand some actions that have happened in her past that are affecting how she ministers now. And it's been freeing, but also almost maddening to try to see how its tentacles have gotten in so many areas of her life. That's how profound of a long-term impact. It is a tool of spiritual warfare. And another big reason we need to really grasp shame's impact is how social media has begun to feed shame spirals exponentially in our lives and our students. I don't know about you, but I remember the joy of not knowing the parties I didn't get invited to. But now you see in real time, look at, oh, oh there's so-and-so. There's so, oh, there's all my friends but me. And so there's like this immediate shaming effect that social media can have, and our students are wrestling with that day after day. At the core of our shame struggles is that we are believing a story that we're telling ourselves. Uh, one book that I'll reference multiple times, and I think they talked about maybe trying to get a few copies out there, and it's one of the best books I've, I've enjoyed, and, um, and he has a great podcast being known, uh, but Kurt Thompson's Soul of Shame, um, and one of the really big things is he looks as a Christian neurobiologist um, um, or neuropsychologist, um, however you'd say it, but he's looking at shame's impact, even um, how our brains respond, how we respond physically, like how it's a whole body even experience. And he uses this great language of the stories we tell ourselves. And all, we know this. Like we know that we are built for story. We talk about it all the time of looking at the scriptures and realize like we are made for this grand narrative that we see written out in the scriptures. This grand narrative that there's a good, holy, perfect God who creates and he creates this beautiful place, and it's good. But then like kind of the, the apex of his creation is an image-bearing creation that reflects him and that is made to experience him, that all of life is meant for that, that creation to experience his goodness, not because he needed that creation, but because he wanted to do it for his creation to experience his goodness, his glory. But the story goes on that that creation rebelled against him, and that goodness the experience of God's goodness was shattered and broken. And the rest of the scriptures 
Or how is God fixing that problem of his creation? Once again, being able to experience and know his goodness and to live as his image bearers. And then there's this future hope of that story. That no matter where you are in it right now, there's this future glory that all that feels not right will be made right. And so we as Christians like, no, we know we are made for story. And so I think for a lot of us, we read like a, a soul of shame type book. We're like, I get it. I get it. We're made for story. But it can still be really hard for us to identify the stories that we tell ourselves. It can be really hard for us to identify the stories that have become so entrenched in who we are that they affect how we live. So I contend, this sounds so cheesy, my wife is like a teacher and so she's always like, come up with like hand illustrations to do this. So at RLM, I made people do like a something and I'm not going to do that with you because um, I felt uncomfortable doing it. Um, but we must name our shame to be able to live, um, to be able to live by a different story. And we'll explain kind of, that's my, that's my contention, that's my application uh, on the back end, right here, the front end. And so we're going to kind of unpack that. So we ask the question, what's the story we're telling ourselves? We're trying to ask, you know, what are those stories that affect us? You know, for our students, maybe we see that some of them are living under the kind of some pressure of their parents with grades or performance with sports or relationships or, or sin in a relationship or just how they just feel when they just show up to youth group of feeling disconnected. Maybe for us, we're struggling with um, just, you know, how we feel in ministry, how we feel like we're doing, raising our kids at the same time of doing ministry, or we're struggling with, I want a family, I'm single right now, or I'm struggling with how this person's ministry across town is blowing up, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm uh, drowning over here. In college, I, I struggled. I always, I always use this word, word, I'm in a funk. I'm in a funk. And it's because I did not like the word depression. I had friends who were profoundly depressed, and I felt like it was disrespectful for me to try to, to capture what I was experiencing as depression. And as it has gotten more profound in my life, I've begun to acknowledge more and more a struggle of depression. It is really hard to embrace ministry to students, to talk about the joy of the Lord, how life-giving the gospel is, how it changes you from the inside out, and then to walk in on a Wednesday night and say, with all of the truth I know, I can't make myself feel better about myself today. That the voices are so loud. And who can I tell that to? Who can I be honest with that about? And so these stories can get so profound and so loud that we begin to wonder, would anybody understand it if I was honest about it? Would they still stick with me? Would they still want me to work with their kids? What do I do with this? To understand shame and the battle, we must understand its origin and profound impact. So, we go to, like everything else, Genesis 1, Genesis 1 through 3, 4, shame's origin and impact. And we begin first with our design is that we are made for relationship. I don't have to convince you of this. You look at Genesis 1, it's going to be kind of fly through. We look at Genesis 1 and we see God made man in our image. Male and female, he created them after his own likeness. But we see that we are made in the image of a communal God. We are made for relationship. We are made for meaningful relationship. We are made to experience relationship. That we see that as the narrative of creation goes on is that God creates, it's good. God creates, it's good. But God creates man and it's not good for him to be alone. It took me a long time to get to this. Another part of my story is I'm just lonely a lot. You saw my beautiful bride, my little mini-me's, and they adore me. I don't, it, it is funny, like when Richie was like giving those illustrations, I was like, there's, there's definitely that. Like it's so fun. I want to be wanted when I get home. Much better than like, I hate you, Dad. Um, but it's so hard to come to grips with I can be in the midst of them and feel so lonely. I'm surrounded by people at church, and yet I feel so lonely. And I question, what's happening? And I look at Genesis 1 and 2, and I see this, this part of our creation. God didn't fail. 
God didn't fail in his design of you, that he made, he made us and he made man and they went, oh gosh, what did I forget? What did I forget? Oh man, something's wrong with this model. What did I not, what, like, go back to the directions. What did I do wrong? No. He made us with like a hardwired check engine all life that you were made for deep, meaningful relationship. And we see it in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 that it is not good for man to be alone. Because I was so made for relationship that when I'm lonely, it's actually a testimony to my design. It's actually a testimony to deep, meaningful connection and relationship. And so when I'm surrounded by people and I feel this loneliness kind of, kind of calling out, I have to ask the question, am I, am I somehow not being known and knowing other people right now? Is there, is there actually something that's happening where I'm not actually connecting with others in a way that my design bears witness to and the last thing we see in the account is that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Nothing is the, you know, more awkward than to try to describe this scene to, to, to our students. But this is one of the most amazing parts of our creation. I don't know like, if y'all like, were in school and everybody always did the like, psych- psychology dream. Like a, a, you know, you're at school, you're walking around, everybody's laughing. You realize you're, you didn't put pants on. Like you're naked or something, you wake up. I say that at RYM and the students are like, what? You're, what? I was like, you're lying to yourself. You've had that dream. <laughs> um, and so uh, there's like, there's just such this deep fear of being exposed, laughed at. I, I want to share your story so bad, Chris, uh, about, uh, oh, I should explain that. Uh, it's not really that bad, but uh, I'll let him explain in his talk um, about accidentally getting a, a picture with his shirt off. Um, but uh, uh, it's not as bad as you guys think. Um, the both, 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 both are legendary. Um, I can't, I can't imagine the scene of Genesis to be in front of another, and that phrase to be naked and unashamed is that there's nothing off-putting about being unclothed in front of this other person. There's not a momentary question of, am I enough? There was not a momentary question of, what if she doesn't like it in two years? There was not a moment of her questioning, but what about when we get older? Will I be enough for him? But there was not a moment of them being unclothed before each other, questioning, where's my place? I long to get my heart to that place, to live naked and unashamed. And that is where we're we're moving towards glory because we see what happens after this is that sin breaks that. It's that sin, as, as Adam and Eve rebel against God, is it breaks that image. As it breaks that scene of being naked and unashamed, of being accepted, of being known and welcomed by the other in such a way that there's no questions about it. That we see this narrative of Genesis 3 say that, that their eyes are immediately opened. The eyes of both were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. That their immediate reaction with their eyes being opened is, i got to get out of here. Their immediate reaction is, I've got to cover up. You're dangerous to me. Suddenly, I don't feel safe with how you see me. That's the experience of shame right out of the gate. And it's both vertical and horizontal because they hide from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is like laughable. Is that Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden thinking they can get away from God. They suddenly feel inadequate, not just before each other, but before a holy God. And God calls out to them, because they think they can hide from it. Sin immediately brings destruction. So let's let's put a definition to it. This I'm a pool of other people's expressions. So if you can't hear for originality, like other than me pointing at Chris, like there's nothing. So this is kind of a conglomeration of Ed Welch, Kurt Thompson, Brene Brown, um, kind of probably a lot of Welch in this, but. Shame is this. It's the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did. That's what probably most of us a lot of times go to is that shame feeling because I sinned 
And I feel bad about it. Not just a guilt. We're not going to spend time talking about a godly guilt, like a good guilt that leads us to repentance, but a shame of defining us by our sin. Not just that I lie, but I'm a liar. That I'm so defined by something I did. It's a deep sense of feeling suddenly I've, I've blown it. I'm unacceptable because of what I did. But also something done to you. The shame also called is, is coming because we live now in a broken world where not only we sin, but we are sinned against. And so the reality is for a lot of us is that we're struggling to come to grips with something has been done to me and I'm wearing the shame of it. Something that was outside of my control now makes me feel dirty. Or something associated with you. You know, we see like through the Old Testament the idea of kind of like being unclean by, you know, coming into contact with a leper or something. But like for some of us, there's, there's, there's something wrong with us, again, beyond our control, but, but we're associated with it. Whether it's a student who comes in and part of a divorced family, struggling to, to try to explain what's happening at home. Or someone coming from a, from a position where maybe the drug addiction is in the home and they're trying to, to figure out, like, what do I do with this? How, how do I make everybody feel like we're okay? Or just a physical ailment. but it's so much so that you feel exposed and humiliated. This is a super silly story, and so it's almost disrespectful for me to share it, but um, this is kind of how I get my mind around shame sometimes. So in high school, I was a part of a morning talk show in our school. We have those TVs that are all throughout the school. I don't know if your schools are like this. Um, uh, in Haniana, we were high tech. And so um, the 19-inch tube TVs. And so we did a Friday show every week where essentially it was what can we dress Kafka up as. And so one week we were like, hey, we have a new wrestling team. You know what would be awesome is if we put Kopic in a wrestling singlet. Again, like A.C. Slater, low here, high here. And so like, what if we put him in that? And he wrestled the best wrestler. I was like, guys, I have a problem with this. And so um, they were like, no, no, it's going to be gold. We're going to do it. You, you don't have a voice. And so like we did it. They give me the singlet, and I look at it, and I go, okay, I am very, very fair-skinned. Um, so I went, thank you, Chris. And so I go to Walmart, and I get sunless tanner, okay? Um, in 1999, they did not yet craft the recipe of sunless tanner to be smooth yet. And so what happened is I got whatever it was, like Oompa Loompa. And so, like, I buy it, I go, I cover myself, but I stop here for some reason because I, I think some reason that'll make it better. But I, I do it, and I mean, it is Oompa Loompa. I mean, I am, R, I am radioactive. And again, go from like this to radioactive. I'm like, how do I go to school tomorrow? So I wear a turtleneck to school the next day, long sleeve turtleneck, and I'm sitting first period and, uh, in computer class thinking like, nobody sees it, nobody sees it. We're good, we're good, we're good. And a friend of mine is just staring at me. She's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, nothing, we're, we're good, we're all good. And she's like, no, something's different. I was like, no, we're good. And eventually she reaches over, pulls down the turtleneck and goes, you got sunless hair! And I mean, by lunchtime, the whole school, let me see it, let me see it, let me see it. And they're like, the whole school wanted to see it. Um, we did still film it. I did, I finished with my face. Um, uh, I don't even know why I felt like it was a good idea to stop the net. But um, that feeling of shame is that like, Man, if everybody, if, if anybody really sees this, I'm done. I gotta cover it up at all costs. I, I gotta put the turtleneck, and it's the fear. Somebody's gonna yank that turtleneck down. I know what you did. I know you now. And it's that feeling of being exposed for all to see. Brene Brown says that shame is this intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Is that shame at times is not just a, like, like thoughts we believe. It's not just facts of something we've done or something done to us that are just hammering us. It is the emotional feeling. It is the bodily experience of feeling like it washes over me. Guys, I'm like a, I'm like a flesh mood ring like you see these red flares well when i feel shame it's it like it lights me up i can feel it radiating like i get red i feel it in my body like it feels like shame is washing over me and it can happen at one comment and i can't hide it 
God blessed me with this mood ring. So, one of my stories, I, I kind of shared of just like, I struggle with depression. Well, one of the stories that somehow got embedded in me from a young age is, I just don't know what I'm wanted. And I, and I had a good family. A family that said, I love you a lot. And I've really struggled to unpack where did it, did it come in. And I, I'm, I feel like we're getting closer. But that just, that just small narrative. I just don't know that I'm wanted. What if they don't want me? It, it drove me in high school to be the party guy. Clearly wasn't an athlete. You don't know this, but I clearly wasn't the scholar. Um, the funny guy at parties was my niche. I could tear people down. I, I could be hilarious. Had to make people want me. I go to college, become a believer. Gospel is free. But do they want me? They all have their griefs. Do they want me? It's like this narrative stays in my in my mind. Well, in the last three years, things have happened that that narrative was like it was just waiting to be loaded to be wielded against me. That there were some things that have happened the last few years where it was like, see, I told you. You thought it was just a thought? Well, now you have proof. And that, fit, that feeling of it just washing over you like you can't get away from it. Like, no matter what I think, no matter how hard I try to babble, it just feels like it washes over me that sometimes, again, it's so loud. Kurt Thompson says, Indeed, shame's power lies not so much in facts that we can clarify, but rather in the emotional state, so much, uh, which is so much harder to shake. It's that when we feel shame attack, it feels paralyzing. And so what does it do? It, it accuses. It's like shame puts you on trial. And the, the way it shows up is we feel like an outcast, like you don't belong with them. They don't want you. And again, going back to my story, like it was like suddenly Satan was just waiting to say, I got proof now. And now you can't battle it. Now you see they don't want you. Or you failed too much. You think they're going to keep putting up with it? You can't get away from it. Or you're unacceptable, unfit, unworthy, unclean, all the uns. The shame, it's not neutral. Shame is wielding your insecurities against you. Shame is using those areas that you don't feel so good about yourself. Shame is using those things that maybe nobody else knows and it's just bringing it back up as weaponry against you over and over again. Kurt Thompson goes on to say, it's the tool of the devil, both a source and result of evil's active assault on God's creation. It's a way for evil to try to hold out until the new creation to the new heavens and new earth appear in the consummation of history. It's like evil can't do nothing else, so it's, it's just wielding this. It's just trying to captivate those that he's already lost to God. It's an active assault on that creation that we saw we were made for. It's evil in its core. Satan accuses you, wielding these insecurities to believe a different story than God's story. Go into that emotional impact again. By shame, I'm not talking about something that necessarily requires the intensity of extreme humiliation. Rather, it's born out of a sense that there is something wrong with me or not being enough. And therefore, it exudes the aroma of being unable or powerless to change one's condition or circumstance. The felt sense that I do not have what it takes to tolerate this moment or circumstance. That last line, I feel like I could just picture certain students right now where that is just the case. It's a certain sense that I just can't tolerate what this moment means, what circumstance I'm in right now. Like a, just a sense that I don't know what to do about that unworthy, unloved, unneeded, unwanted feeling right now. That's the power of what we're talking about. Oh man, I broke those two back-to-back moments. Um, the emotional impact, but also the mental impact, Kurt Thompson goes, in the same manner that God intends that our minds grow in maturity and connection just as we do with each other, it is one of shame's primary features to disrupt and disintegrate that very process 
functionally leading to either rigid or chaotic states of mind and behavior lived out intra towards yourself and interpersonally. That like shame is just, it's disorienting. That's just a word it feels like just keeps coming up. It's like I just feel so disoriented by this right now. That what a part of your story feels like, it feels like every time I feel like I'm gaining momentum, I'm just getting my feet kicked out from under me. What is it that just when it feels like something's going right, I'm disoriented? I'm trying to speak truth and I'm trying to remember what God says of me and yet this feels so powerful. It feels disorienting. Where do you feel shame's accusations? What do you think is being spoken to you? Brene Brown uses the phrase shame tapes. That It's like we have these tapes on loop in our minds. And she says shame's too broad tapes or you're not enough and who do you think you are? I mean, is that not true of us in ministry at times where we stand up in front of others and who do you think you are to speak to others? Do they know what you did? Do they know what you're thinking? Do they know what you're struggling with? Our students are walking into scenes over and over again. Who do you think you are? You think you can be in this group? You think you can be in that group? You think you're really wanted here? It's hitting all of us. I'm not needed. I have no value. Maybe, maybe if I can't do it perfectly, I had a student that, man, she was every bit of an Enneagram One, just perfectionism. And if I can't do it perfectly, who would really love me for this? If I'm too needy, I'll push people away. I'll be too much of a burden for others. If I speak up, I'll be seen as this way, as contentious. If I criticize, I have a student right now, she's one of the sweetest students, and she's just struggling with some things her parents are saying to her. Not even bad things, and her parents are just so amazing. They're just such amazing people, but she just feels like she can't live under the weight of some of their comments. And we're trying to talk about what would it look like just to kind of begin to say like, hey, I know you love me, I know you, I know you really want to encourage me, but these comments are actually, they're burdening to me. I can't live under it. But she's like, but what kind of child would I be? They're amazing. How, how would I be a good daughter if I, pointed, if, I, if I made them feel bad about themselves in this way? And she's just shaming herself for how she feels like, I can't live under your weight. I'm going to be crushed. What are the shame tapes in your life? See, what, one of the things that's so hard about this is that at the garden, this rebelling against God's rule also meant there was a rebelling against and breaking of relationship. Of this relationship with God and relationship with each other. Is it going back to the origins of shame? Its impact is relational. Is that as much as we'd like to say, like, I know I struggle with this, but it doesn't impact anybody. No, it always comes out relationally. Shame breaks relationship in two ways. We see in the garden that they hide, and then Adam does kind of his like cool maneuver of like blaming everyone. And so like we 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 have two kind of major ways that we we kind of break relationship. The first is we hide. Maybe you're one who avoids. That when you feel that feeling of shame, it's like whoop, I'm out. Like you start to kind of retreat. You you know the areas, you know the places where you might have to be known a little more deeply. Maybe you skip like the, the prayer group time Wednesday. Like you were like, there it is. Somebody's going to ask me a question, so like I got to take that call at church. And so like you avoid those situations or places where you might actually be known for the real you. Or you isolate yourself. You don't just avoid places. You completely stiff arm those around you. Or maybe you pretend. You wear a mask. You, may, you kind of organize and structure your life in a way to hide what you're uncomfortable with. Or you do this. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm fine is like the biggest Christian middle finger to me. So like I struggle with Sunday mornings. I've had a few people push back on that. I struggle with Sunday mornings. I struggle with Sunday mornings because I struggle with like a hundred I'm fines. I struggle with everybody asking me, hey, how are you doing? (laughs) Do you want to know? Do you really want to know? And I know the setting of Sunday is like, we got to get on the next day. It's just, people just really do want to hear you're okay or a quick, like, how can I pray for you? Well, the, one of the ways that we kind of cope with how we really feel is we extend a stiff arm with, I'm fine. And I also want to make this concession. Some people are so, so broken, so unnerved, so undone, that I'm fine actually is probably the only expression that they can try to get their heads around how they really feel. 
But I'm fine is the way. I know for me that I push people away. I'm good. I'm fine. This new one's. we have a sign in our office because we've said it so much. It is what it is. It's like the biggest, like, I give, well, we'd go over here to point, like, it's the biggest shutdown. Like, it is what it is. It's the biggest way of, like, my world's crashing in, but there's nothing anybody can do about it, so I'm just going to sit in it. The last thing is this. Maybe you, uh, you hide behind overperformance. That the more you feel inadequate, the more you fill up your schedule. The more you feel like you're letting your church down, the more meetings you set up. The more you feel like you're wasting their time and money, the more more just activity of ministry you structure so that you feel like you have weight and value. You overperform. Or you point. You do Adam's roll, you blame, like it's really her fault. It's his fault. God, the woman you gave me, you really messed up in that. Like we just go back and forth. Or we compare. That's one of the first things. Like we look at other people. We shut down. This, this sounds like this is like an avoidance or hiding, but shut down and underperformance is really kind of like a deflection of like, okay, if it's so bad, you do it. If it's so bad, somebody else needs to do it. I'm in somebody else's position. Just let them take over. They would do it better than I would anyway. I have, a, I have a friend right now, so gifted, and yet constantly questions. How, how am I like this person? How am I like this person? They just need to do it. They just need to do it. They just need to be the one. No, you need to do it because you're gifted. Everybody sees it. But you don't see that you're just walking in a covering of shame every day, choosing to hide. Ed Welch says, Shame identifies that we are unacceptable, dirty, and disgraced, sent away, distanced from people and God's promises. We notice that life can feel more like death. We see like Jesus came to give life and give it abundantly. We wonder, why does it feel so bad today, though? Why does it just feel like death. We become unacceptable because of our own sin, become unacceptable because of our association with things connected with death, such as weakness, disease, and the sins of others. No matter how sin death gets its hands on us, it brings shame, and shame must receive the appropriate remedy. It's it's a sin death feeling, no matter how it gets those tentacles onto us. So Brene Brown says that shame needs three things to grow. If you like put it in a Petri dish, how would, how would shame exponentially grow? Silence, solitude, and judgment. Because shame remains powerful by being nameless. It remains powerful by being abstract and in the darkness of your life. That when it's actually called out into the light and we actually see what God says of this, it loses its weight and power. And so one of the things that, that we struggle with to battle is that we struggle thinking, who can I really tell this to? There's no way anybody could really walk with me in this. And then we actually condemn ourselves. Another word we've begun to say more and more, uh, and I think it's probably from Thompson's Being Known podcast, is that shame begins to be a story of contempt against yourself. That it's not just, I'm struggling with this. I can't believe I'm struggling with this. Who struggles like this? Who feels about themselves the way 37, I should be way past this. 54, I should be way past this. Who feels like this? Who's in youth ministry? I, I, every day, youth ministry still feels like middle school lunchroom. Who can I sit with? Who's going to like talk to me today? 37 years old, wondering what student will actually acknowledge me today. Still wondering. Who feels like that? How dare you feel like that? We see in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. It's that silence keeps us in it. Shame's power is remaining nameless in the shadows. It can't survive in the light of being known. So, I want to make the contention that vulnerability is one of the ways we overcome shame. And there's beginning to be a little bit of a pushback this. of like um, There's people that feel like we're just such like a... Um, uh, easily victimized culture and like when we talk about vulnerability we're like removing it from the gospel and I want to be careful when I talk about this that when we talk about vulnerability is a way that we overcome shame we're not talking about vulnerability for vulnerability's sake it's a vulnerability born out of truths of the gospel that frees us to be known because we are fully accepted by the sufficient work of Christ And so a vulnerability where we can actually take the risk of being known, and it's not just I go to Publix and the person in front of me, I'm like, hey, you want to know what I really did? Okay, oh, I feel better. Like, it's not just vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. I hate that I even have to make that disclaimer, but it feels like that's the pushback. So the way we define vulnerability is the risking being known, which opens us up to attack, harm, and exploitation. 
so immediately we're like, okay, wait a minute, I don't really want to do that. Um, because that looks really bad. Because when sinners trust sinners with a hard story, it's hard to trust. They know what to do with it. And I don't know if you've ever told somebody something really, really a treasure to you, really hard to you, really painful to you, and they had a deer-in-headlights look like, cool, I struggle like that too. Nope. And you suddenly feel like, man, I knew it. I knew if I took the risk of being known, this would happen. Lock it back away. That maybe you trusted your story with somebody. Maybe they used it against you. Maybe it wasn't just that they didn't know how to use it, but they actually used it against you. That's what your students are afraid of every day. You want me to share a real honest prayer request? And these jokers are going to not go to their school and talk about it? Yeah, right. You want me to share how I feel inadequate in youth group? And that girl, and I see how she talks about everybody at her school, and she, you want me to be honest? Okay. Vulnerability is taking a risk of being known and that the other person is actually doing something with it. And I just can't promise that everybody's going to know what to do with your story. And that's why we seek for trustworthy people. We seek for safe people. People that in that moment we can be naked and unashamed. Not literally. But we can be naked and unashamed to be known because we are accepted in Christ. That this person is safe. Your students are wrestling with if you're a risk worth taking. Some of your parents are, are wrestling with are you a risk worth taking to really be known by you? Can you be trusted with their story? I mean, you're wondering, who in this church can I be honest with? Who can I go to? Where, where's my place? Where's my safe place to be honest? Well, we look at the Scriptures and we see that God shows vulnerability by doing two things, by pursuing and covering us. That the trajectory of the Bible is God's movement towards His broken creation, an interaction in His story, and an intentional movement of pursuing love. That we see in the garden, God pursues by calling out to Adam and Eve out of their shame. Where are you? Again, it's laughable if they think they can hide from the God of all creation. I think that when God says, where are you? Just me. And whoever I got this from. I think it's God saying, I still want you. I still want you. You hid, you covered yourself in fig leaves. Where are you? It's God's pursuit of his people. Now he's going to bring judge, he's going to bring the, the punishment, but he's going to remind them also that I'm not just going to pursue you just to discipline you, but I'm also going to cover you. You see, he reestablishes his commitment to them. That I'm going to be your God. And so in Genesis 3, he says, I'm going to bring one who will crush the head of the serpent. And you're going to be my people. He covers, he provides a sufficient covering for their nakedness. Is that, that that scene where he actually has the animal skin to cover them, that, that he doesn't just let it go, that they, they gather in fig leaves. He's like, oh, it's awkward, but come on. No, he actually provides a sufficient covering for them. And we see the rest of the scripture fair witness is that he's going to do something about your deepest shame. It's a sufficient covering. Jesus Christ on the cross. A promise of a future covering that will make us acceptable God. So on the cross, we see that God pursues us by becoming flesh in the person of Christ. He was tempted and tried in every way as we are, and yet without sin. We see that Christ comes into our story in the flesh. And we can go all through the Gospels of how He experiences shame, but He pursues us. We see steadfast love in action, in the flesh, and He covers us. Is that he becomes the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. Is that he restores that relationship lost by sin. He restores it by his precious blood that is sufficient to cover you so you don't have to measure up anymore. So you don't have to keep running out wondering, what can I do to measure up to feel acceptable to God and in community? Is that he pursues and he covers. See, in Psalm 22 is that that pursuit was risky. Is that we see that Jesus, the very same psalm, he cries out on the cross, 
We see, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned, not ye scorned, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Psalm 69, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My, uh, my foes are all known to you. Or Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as we feel so, so isolated in our shame. We look at the scriptures and we see the one who pursues and covers us, he knows the story of shame. He knows the story of being the outcast. He knows the story of being seen of, I don't want you. As one who men hid their faces. Or this, I love Hebrews 12 right here where it says, looking to Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That shame of that, that cross that was reserved for the worst of criminals to be held up to say, look what they did. Look what they did. And to be mocked, king of the Jews, a, a, a thorn, a, a crown of thorns to mock him. And it says he embraced that. It's the joy set before him, despising the shame. Another, another kind of like more wooden translation of this is shamed the shame. It's like he stripped the shame of the cross so that it would actually be a glory because it would win a people to be his. Is it literally he was shamed for our shame? Jesus willingly bore the shame of the cross so you wouldn't bear the shame of your sin. That's the reality. That's the message of the scriptures. And it's a message that's really hard to walk in. I want to look at a practical one. Oh, I got it. Okay, so real quick, turn to John 4. John 4. We're going to see it in real time. John 4. It's a familiar passage. The woman at the well. I won't read the passage, but you can kind of glance through it. The Mark 5, the, the woman with the, the discharge of years, was another great example I, I love to use when we talk about this. Um, but I could have just said, like in this whole talk, like everything like Richie said. Um, just keep referencing back to your notes. Um, it's a danger to try to follow him. Uh, John 4. So we have this scene. We have this woman come um, to the well. Jesus takes the disciples through Samaria. You know the background of how Jews view Samaritans, how Samaritans view Jews. It's like, oh, you hate us? Okay, we hate you back. Okay, you're, you're inbred. Okay, you're not pure. Okay, all this. So there's this back and forth view of each other. So there's just shame even just right there out of the gate. But what you have here is a woman coming out in the heat of the day. There's some sort of just capturing in the scene of, I just don't want to be around people. I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's almost like the, the narrative is almost screaming to us that she just wants to be a woman away. Jesus sends the disciples into town and he sits with her and begins to approach her. And he speaks to her, addresses her. He pursues her by initiating the conversation. And then it goes the back and forth. And, and she says, you, a Jew, and I, a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like the scene just screams with like, you shouldn't be talking to me. <laughs> What are you doing? This doesn't feel right. Culturally, this doesn't happen right now. Man, rabbi, Jew, Samaritan woman, and what we find in a minute, how she views herself. So it goes through and, you know, talking about, okay, this is the, the well of her father Jacob, who gave us a uh, swell drink for himself, and also for the sons of flocks of hers. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will be Come in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Has to be confusing right there. It's like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about a little while. Okay, now we're not. Okay, well, okay. Well, just give me that water then. So I won't thirst. Switch gears. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Just said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five, you've had five husbands. The one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Again, there's different like views on this passage, but... Culturally, these husbands had to have died or, or divorced her, leaving her exposed, leaving her vulnerable. And who she's with now, it's not her husband. So whatever informal relationship that is, it's seen some way that she's out here in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day, getting water, getting away from everybody. Because however she's viewed in her place, she's just, I, I can't take it. I don't want to get away from it. I want to get away from it. He just calls it out. Well, flash forward. He's talking about, you know, again, she says, I can see that you're a prophet. Switch gears. My father's worshipped on this mountain. 
Jesus goes back and forth with her. Well, finally, Jesus says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So this woman, trying to get away from everybody, trying to hide from everybody, is talking to the Messiah. And the first time here we see he reveals himself as who he really is to her. A Samaritan woman who, whatever whatever her real story is, is trying to get away from her, feels the way she feels about herself, is there. And it's to her that he says, I want you. If you knew who you were talking to, you would get this living woman. Such a beautiful scene of Jesus pursuing someone in their shame. What, so what happens? She runs back to town. And so in this town that she wants to get away from, she starts screaming like, come see, come see the one who told me everything that I've ever done. And in a place where people wouldn't listen to a woman's testimony, they all run out to see this Jesus. And then the story goes, at first we believed on her account, which was crazy in itself. But now we believe for ourselves. That pursuit and that being known by Jesus and Jesus extending himself to be known by her changed this woman. That she would run back to the place and shout it out, come see, come see. You see, to be known in this way, to be known by King Jesus changes us. The true healing for our shame is found in being known by God, knowing his steadfast love for us. Knowing that he sees you and that he has covered you. That, that he isn't waiting to drop another gavel and say, man, you blew it. I knew you were going to blow it. Now you did it. No, actually, he keeps looking at you and he keeps seeing the righteous robes of Jesus Christ clothed over you. And he takes delight in you. Not because you did better today, but because Jesus was enough. That in your shame, he delights in you. He doesn't delight more in you because you did battle with your shame. He delights in you today. So our students need to know that that is our story we were made for. So how do we battle? This sounds over-simplistic. First is we try to put words to our shame. And so I have like different ways that I do this. Um, well, I'll come back to it in a sec. So first is we try to put words to our shame. Is we, try to, we try to understand, we seek out, what is the story I keep telling myself? What is it that has weight over me that affects how I view myself? What is it that keeps crippling me? What is the story? What is the narrative? Put it down on paper. And then what do we do is we actually turn to Christ, the one who has experienced shame on our behalf. Is that we seek to, to, to know that Jesus who you knows the shame that I, I struggle with. To call out, this is what I feel about myself. God, help me. Help me to understand this. Help me to believe your truth of what you say to me. And then we turn to others in vulnerability. And so we look at the ones that are Christ's presence with us. Vulnerability in relationships is that true, true vulnerability rooted in the gospel is the willingness to know and to be known by others in such a way that reflects the pursuing steadfast love of Christ. Is that one of my friends said, I'm just tired of saying it. So what's wrong? What's the same old stuff? Well, tell me. I don't want to say it. Why? Because it's the same old thing. But I love you. And you're worth it. And it's attacking you. And I want to know you. I want you to know this hasn't discounted you. I want you to know Christ sees you today. Be known. How is it that we pursue others at risk ourselves? Well, one is we pursue by sharing our story. Is that for some of your students wrestling with how can I, how can I trust this person if they've never heard in any way that you struggle? It's hard to reveal that to you, how they struggle. Now again, there's parameters to that. I, I use what I call vague vulnerability. Is I grow in vulnerability. For some of you, you've never been vulnerable with anybody. And so your leaders, your peers... Those trying to invest in you are struggling to figure out how do I tell more of my story? How do I put words to some of these things? And so you're learning to kind of share a little bit more, a little bit more at a time. But obviously your students, middle school, can't handle most of your story. But what are ways that you can learn to share a little bit? I remember when I struggled with that. I remember a time in my life where I was very similar in that way. We were pursued by sharing what we feel. Like I feel very alone right now. You know how embarrassing it is to tell my students? I struggle with loneliness at times. I don't want you always at my house, but I struggle with loneliness. <laughs> Do you ever just sit in the lunchroom and you're around your friends and you just wonder, like, 
Any of these folks know me? They really care to keep knowing me? We pursue by sharing how another affects us. The story I'm telling myself right now is this. Man, like, I, I'm just like, I have some such awesome co-workers right now. And one of them just knows me so well, she can see when shame washes over me, our, our women's director. And she says, okay, wait a minute, stop. What are you telling yourself? I hate it when she says that. Because she knows me so well. She sees it, again, this physical mood ring. Like, I'm wearing that shame and she's calling it out. Because she's like, I want you to know, I see you. You matter. If you can't put words to it right now, we'll come back to it. We pursue by sharing our failures and asking others to forgive us. I really messed up by sharing that information about you to make myself look better. Please forgive me. And then we cover others at risk to ourselves. So this is, again, being that safe place for others. We cover by giving the gift of presence. We cover by being at rest and allowing others to rest, like not making kind of it hard for people to come to us, about being a presence that is actually people enjoy to be with. We cover by overlooking an offense. We cover by forgiving, actively forgiving others. And we cover by trusting others. I have this chart. Again, if you have the slides, um, and, and I have like four broad areas of shame and then just some examples of shame stories of, of some of the narratives, like expectations, like I always fail, I am a failure, uh, no way I'll ever be like blank, like you don't just measure up. What's the danger? And then like, what does the gospel say? What's the better story that Jesus is calling you to recognize to live by. Um, again, shame shudders when you speak truth. So these are just some questions that I try to ask people to try to pull apart their story of like, what's true? What, what, what is the narrative you're living by? What does this gospel say about this? What's the truth I need to remind myself? What's a prayer we can pin from this? Who's somebody I can trust just to be honest and open with? Um, and then lastly, again, this is another, another way to kind of ask some of these questions. What, what does it make you feel exposed? How do you feel dirty? Uh, do you feel worthless like nothing? What is... What is the sin that you're beginning to say? I didn't just do this. I am this. Like, what are some of these ways that you try to avoid or cover up? How are you trying to mask what's really happening right now? Um, man, I just flew through this, and there's just so many amazing books written on this. But one of the things I'm just reminded of over and over again is we can come here this week, and we can still go back into the mainstream of our ministries and just hide. We can go back into our context and question, does anybody really care to actually know me? And if they really knew these are the areas I'm struggling with, if they really knew this about me, they knew really this is what I thought about myself, they just wouldn't trust me to leave. They wouldn't trust me to be whatever. If you're struggling with that, like that's the beauty of YLT, is that you're connecting with people here that even as you go back, you can still connect with. So I'd love to talk to you, obviously, like the staff, but that's just a beautiful part of Christian community is that that vulnerability is actually that we can be known. Because we understand where shame has begun, its profound impact, and how it's worked in our lives. And my plug, uh, I showed the, the, the uh, Kurt Thompson, Soul of Shame, and this little book that Welch came out with. Um, so I love Renee Brown, but she, you know, she like doesn't really bring much gospel. When I say much, I mean any gospel to it. And so, um, but she says the things that like Welch doesn't say. He says it all churchy, and then she's like, bleep, bleep. and so like I love like Renee Brown's take on it. I love uh, the podcast by Kurt Thompson being known. But Welch just came out with this like devotional book on shame, which everybody's like, let's start a devotional on shame. But like um, this is an amazing little tool, and it's just very well written uh, the way Welch did this. And he has another book that would be more his like bigger book on shame is uh, Shame Interrupted. And so like I love to resource people and point people to like actual uh, gifted people. And so like those are those are some great resources. And so um, and if there's more I can point you to on the website, on the digital notebook, I, I made a sheet of several videos, several podcasts, and just some of my go-tos with um, trying to understand my own story, trying to understand shame, and then how to better communicate that with my students, my families, and to be um, ministering in this area with our people. Um, let me pray for us. King Jesus, as we talk about shame, you, you know it. As one who would come in such humble means and to constantly be misunderstood, to constantly be spit upon, to constantly be, be rejected, You understand our experience. You know our affliction when we struggle with shame's impact in our lives. 
and you don't just tell us to get over it. Would we feel your presence as we're honest and being known by one another, as we seek to trust brothers and sisters in Christ with our stories? Would we actually experience your active, pursuing, steadfast love in our life as you give us those trustworthy people, as you give us those people that we can be safe with, as you give us those people who can hold our story and direct us to the grace and understanding of your gospel that can direct us to healing that is found in you alone. Lord, we thank you that you give us community. And I recognize that some of my brothers and sisters are struggling in community right now. And so I pray, Father, that you're providing for them faithful presences in their life, in their context, in their cities, in their churches, of how you would bring real healing in their lives. I pray you would help us to understand this more, to grow in this more, to better understand the shame that so touches the lives of our students and our parents and our families that we're dealing with. Lord, praise be to you that you don't give up on us. And you move towards us. Even when we struggle to remember your promises. We love you, King Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.